Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip and commentary. You can't beat the sound of a contented cat. That's why veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Because he knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. And our premium cat food is designed to satisfy even the most finicky eaters. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It is a dirty business and murder is at the center of it. A man stood in that boogie shop and pressed the trigger to take five lives. And I firmly believe that he pulled that trigger in the belief that he would never stand trial. And there has to be something wrong with that. You can see the pain and the heartache still remains all these years later. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. A shocking mass murder at a bookie's office in Belfast. 30 years of unanswered questions for those left behind. And now an ombudsman's report that cites collusive behaviour and failings by police. At the heart of the Sean Graham bookmaker's atrocity and seven other loyalist attacks carried out by the UDA, which claim the lives of 11 people, lie the use of RUC informants, who were also killers. In the murky world of cops and gangsters, where information is whispered in the shadows, did a corrupted system protect the bad? And today, are the institutions more concerned about their reputations or the quest for justice? Today, I'm talking to my colleague Hugh Jordan about murder on the Ormo Road and the legacy of decisions made in a time of extremes. We measure the injustices caused by secrecy and silence with the consideration of letting sleeping dogs lie. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Hugh, the victims of the Ormo Road Bookies Massacre were aged between 66 and 15. Do you know much about them or have you been in touch at all with any of the relatives? Yes. Um, last Saturday, I was down there and spoke with uh, several of them. Uh, it, it's a very unusual place. It's a, it's a, it's a community of about a thousand people on the, the, on the lower Ormo Road. It changed somewhat. It's almost exclusively Catholic area now. But the boogie shop was interesting, Nicola, in as much as as well as being a bookmaker where people went in and placed bets, 
it also uh, was a sort of male hub. It was where every day people met and chatted and stories were swapped and 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 it, it was a, a cafe without any tea or coffee being on the go. It was a pub without any drink, but it was very much a meeting place and was busy all day long. And a very enjoyable atmosphere yeah. about the place, you know. And obviously different generations of families went in. Um, James Kennedy was only 15 that day when he lost his life. He was following the footsteps of his father, who was also uh, James Kennedy, uh, yeah. who's known as Jackie. And uh, Jackie was very fond of a bet. And I, w- I knew Jackie very well. And uh, he, he, he used to rib me about Celtic. He, he, we, we used to go to a pub in town called Bittles Bar. And he was furious because uh, John Biddles, the owner, when I came in, would put Celtic on rather than the racing. And Jackie right. was very unhappy about that. And we often had had great fun about it. You know, uh, Jackie was a magnificent man who did the best. And was, was his son that day down to do a bet for himself or, or for, for Jackie? Well, if the truth is told, then there's no harm in telling the truth. Uh uh, James was following in the footsteps of his father. He right. enjoyed the bets, and he probably looked uh, a bit older than he than in actual fact he was. Uh, if he yeah. he wasn't putting a bet on for anyone else, it was okay. for himself. And what about his father, Jackie? What happened to him? Jack, Is Jackie he still just alive? Took, took ill and died. Uh, his, yeah. uh, James's mum uh, died two years after. Uh, after her son and and Jackie is on record as saying that she died of a broken heart. She right. she rarely left the house uh, in the two years since her son was murdered in the bookie shop that day, uh, which is thirty years ago. She left the house less than half a dozen times. So right. it was a, a it was a story of heartbreak. You know? Yeah. And it shows really that there's more than one victim when these, you know, yes, these exactly. awful yeah. things happen. Yes. So February 1992 and people were gathering in that bookie shop to either lay their bets or to have their chats, as you say, or to meet up or maybe they were dropping in and out as they went past. So what happened and, and what time of the day, do you know? Yes, it, it was uh, it was just after 2.30. And uh, the Ormo Road's an arterial route into Belfast, and it's always uh, busy enough. But this was exceptionally well-planned attack by the loyalists. And uh, they came down and turned left from the Ormo Road up at the bookie shop and turned into University Avenue and parked immediately there, uh, probably on a, a double yellow line. There was a driver and two gunmen, one bearing a, a, a replica AK-47 assault rifle and the other with a, 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 a pistol. And uh, they walked across the road, but in the operation, further down the road, there's a, a crossing and uh, other loyalists that were in, in the operation, their job was to hit the cross button, uh, that would have uh, slowed the traffic uh, to, to a stop. 
Uh, and if you keep repeating that, that, that means about every two minutes. Uh, it's, so the whole traffic is very quickly slowed down uh, for anyone crossing the road. It's possible to nip across without using the crossing. And uh, they got their way across the road uh, bala- wearing balaclavas and walked in and uh, opened fire. And uh, it, it was absolute devastation uh, with uh, five people being shot dead. James actually survived. He, he, he managed to get taken in an ambulance to the hospital, but he was uh, dead on arrival. And there were seven other people uh, injured. Injured. And just to maybe name the other people that died that day, there was Peter McGee, who was 18, Christy Doherty, 52, Willie McManus, 54, and Jack Duffy was 66. Um, The replica AK-47 did what the real thing does and sprayed bullets everywhere. I mean, they're used by Mexican cartels. Uh, They've been used well, famously here in Dublin at the Regency Hotel, but they are a very dangerous weapon and will cause maximum destruction. Deadly weapon. And the history of it, Nicola, was it was one of a shipload of, of, of weapons that came in from South Africa. Uh, late in the Troubles, this uh, organisation, loyalist group called Ulster Resistance, you will remember the pictures and film footage of Ian Paisley wearing a red beret and other senior members of the Democratic Unionist Party in the Ulster Hall and uh, the, 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 the people linked with this organisation successfully brought in this uh, shipload of arms and this uh, gun was, was one of them. Right. And, and the other one was uh, an, an, an army issue handgun. Yeah. And you were saying late in the Troubles, this was 1992. And around that time, I think the uh, the RUC, there had been a sort of an increase in unionist violence, likely because of these weapons being brought in or whatever connections they had made. So they kind of pushed out their, their programme to bring it on informants so they could work out what was happening. Yeah. Well, it was, um, it, the, the increase in unionist violence, Nicola, was as a result of the signing of the Anglo-Irish Agreement. And of that, course. that uh, increased loyalist tension. Mm. So the RUC at this point are have signed up probably more than their fair share of UDA informants and uh, they should know what's going on, should they not? And they should know what is being planned from within that group if they have touts. Uh, and the Ombudsman report that has come out this week clearly states that there was collusion there. They did maybe not know exactly this attack was going to happen, but uh, a number of their people and their books were involved in this. They, they certainly were. Certainly were. Certainly the two people standing firing the weapons. And uh, the but the, the report that was published uh, th- this week does say at the end, uh, the Ombudsman, Marie Anderson, does say that uh, she had no evidence saying that the RUC at that time were aware that this attack was, was going to happen. She states mm. that quite clearly in two paragraphs at the end of the report. But uh, you're correct, the... The, the, the lead gunman was a particularly interesting individual. I happen to know an awful lot about him. 
and uh, he he was from a loyalist background in East Belfast. Uh, he was involved in uh, a, a forcing Catholic families out of their homes initially, and then went quickly went into uh, loyalist criminality. And he was successfully part of uh, a criminal stroke loyalist gang which specialised in uh, commercial burglary, I would call it. They would uh, break into uh, big companies, warehouses and things and, and blow the safe and steal money, steal alcohol and, and cigarettes, they specialised, and they didn't confine themselves to Belfast. They, they travelled uh, as far away as Oma to carry out these operations. So they were making, uh, uh, and they were successful uh, in two things, in, 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 in acquiring, illegally acquiring wealth, and secondly, evading the police. Uh, now, there may be uh, uh, something that we don't know about uh, where they allowed to get away with things, but they were very, very active. And then, uh, strangely, I mean, if this man is alive and well today, but he, uh, at 42 years of age, becomes a killer. And that is a remarkable uh, thing. Now, mm. we, we take into account the bookie shop and we're aware, I'm aware of five other murders that we can certainly would be in the frame for. After the bookie shop? Well, well around, the bookie certainly shop. around, around the, the same shop, time. yeah. Okay. So, you know, this is becoming slightly familiar. Now, nobody's been charged in relation to this massacre. Nobody, five lives lost, one of them in hospital afterwards as a result of injuries, but nonetheless, five, five murders that day, that moment, that instant. Um, and you know who done it. And yet, you know, why, why is this just such a recurring feature in a lot of the stories we've been talking about of late? And, you know, these victims have to live side by side uh-huh. with... Um, relatives of these victims have to live side by side with known killers. Like, why is that the case? Well, that, that's that's the big question. And uh, one of the, the, the victims' uh, sons referred to that uh, last Saturday. Uh, if, if we all know this, if the reporters know it, and the, now the, the, the victims, we've written several uh, articles in the Sunday World pointing the finger uh, and educating people because initially two individuals who have since been executed by the IRA towards the end of their campaign within uh, weeks of it finishing, uh, th- these individuals were named uh, as uh, being the gunmen in the Ormoroden. In actual fact, they weren't, uh, but they did play a peripheral role in the theft of vehicles used in it but mm. this is the question about the use of as you as you pointed out earlier on in the use of informants and their rules and their the, the the being allowed to involve themselves in criminality right up to and including murder it's a big question and at the very heart of it i suppose is um a situation that maybe you know it leads me back to a podcast i did last year an interview with Brian Kelly, who was the former state prosecutor in Boston, and he was the lead counsel against Whitey Bulger. 
um, you know, the leader of a, a murderous man who was only brought to justice at the very, very end of his life and actually died in jail at 89 at the hands of fellow criminals. But um, Bulger basically was on the books of the FBI. He was an informant and um, it seemed that he was allowed to carry on his business and, you know, certain officers turned a blind eye. But his business wasn't mid-ranking. His business wasn't low-ranking. He wasn't just a street dealer, you know, making a few bob. This was a killer. And the point being, I suppose, that, that Brian Kelly made was that the institutions concerned seemed to be more worried about their reputation than actually bringing him to justice or bringing any of these things to a, a, an end and, and to a justice for victims. That the institutions of the state and in, in the case in the North, you have the RUC and the army, the, 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 the British army, and they do seem to be time and again just concerned that their reputation is kept intact. And yet we have so many people. I mean, in this Ombudsman report, I think um, Marie Anderson links, does, is it 11 murders to uh, possible collusion with the RUC? I mean, there's so many people involved in that and so many people desperate for justice um, so many years on. And yet it seems that the, the institutions of the state seem more important than human lives. I, I agree with you that uh, each individual organisation tends to be preoccupied with preserving their own reputation and integrity. And clearly, when we are dealing with organisations that deal in life and death and the, the protection of, of life and death uh, or, or the surrender of life and death, uh, is problematic, and when they have f access to firepower to to direct uh, such a, 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 an enterprise, uh, it, it it is problematic. And I'm aware, uh, and I do totally agree that uh, there is more than ample evidence to say. If the people have a mentality, if that has nothing to do with us, then just ignore it. Uh, mm. But the the and there and there are frictions and tensions. Always was during the troubles between the police and the army. At one stage, the British army in the early days had a, a supremacy on the streets. And then things changed and there was a, a policy of what they called Ulsterization, where the RUC became the, the, the senior uh, law, law enforcement agency on the streets. Mm. And what specifics did Marie Anderson find in, in the investigation about the Ormo Road bookie shop uh, murders? There was a, a browning gun, was there, that had been seized and was given back? Yes, uh, on, on that, uh, a short distance away, I mean, less than two miles away from the Ormo Road, we have the Malone Road, and there was an army base there that housed the Ulster soldiers from the Ulster Defence Regiment. And uh, uh, there was a suggestion, I think has been verified, that uh, a, a well-known loyalist called Ken Barrett uh, linked to the Pat Finucane murder 
that he removed um, a number of, of pistols uh, that were given into the hands of loyalism. It was partly set up for him to do, to do so. But uh, one of the pistols was uh, was was given back, apparently disabled, but then given back. But of course, Belfast being an industrial city, there was always people capable of uh, changing a, a weapon that was useless as far as firing concerned to to making it active again. And this is this is what happened apparently in that case. So she she did find uh, things like that. But I think a lot of the findings were uh, not very enthusiastically followed up uh, inquiries that uh, something that would have, should have uh, sparked more of an investigation was then just left and the, uh, the, 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 the particular inquiry hit a dead end instead of going on. In a new new direction. She lists that one of the suspects' blood was not tested um, against the victim's blood, and that um, one of the alibis given to police wasn't properly followed up. Um, they're just two of the things I noticed. Now the report is nearly four hundred pages long, so I can't claim to have gone through it. Um, but like, what is your sort of overall feeling about the running of informants? Because that does seem to be at the heart of a lot of this, you know, of this collusion that went on. And I suppose, you know, the wheels of justice only turn because touts are giving information to police, isn't that? We all know that, you know, um, the criminals know it, we know it, the cops know it. It's the cardinal sin to be a rat. And yet it seems to me that they're all ratting a little bit. So, you know, it's part and parcel of the criminal world, be that terrorism or, or organised crime. But um, I know cops don't really like having to run informants with, with rules and procedures. I know the difficulties that causes. You can imagine in a small way what it would be like for us if we had to sign pieces of paper and, you know, inform other people who we were going to talk to. It just wouldn't work. But at the same time, when you have these situations that you've got, you know, informants who are really too serious criminals to be run on the in the system and you have cops maybe turning a blind eye to serious criminality. It's just hard to see how it can work without really strict rules and regulations. Mm-hmm. Um uh, yeah, I, I do agree with you. Uh, it's difficult because the, the ordinary person in the street who who lives their life honestly and decently, they, they they you know that's a world beyond what they know. They just mm. see right and wrong, and and policemen dealing with right and wrong uh, as as we see it. But you know, and I know that that is not the the real world. It's a much more grey world, and and lines can be blurred. Uh, so rules are important, and I think in the north, we, where we have a conflicting a identity crisis, it's it's even it's even worse. Uh, yeah. I I do I do think when history is written, the RUC will come out it 
uh, in a much better light than it, it appears this week. Uh, mm. <clears throat> because the, 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 because the, 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 the conflict was brought to a close and it was largely brought to a close because of the work of informants run by the RUC. Um, mm. So it is a, 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 it's a mire, it's a quagmire of, 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 of exchange and it's very, very difficult. But as uh, every year goes on, it's a while since we've had one uh, revelation. At one stage, we had one revelation after another, uh, particularly mm. dealing with the IRA. But this week, we're dealing with loyalism uh, because of the, 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 the Ombudsman's report. It is a dirty business uh, mm. and murder is at the centre of it. Uh, initially, I was remained to be convinced of the, the the product being worth it, but uh, I am led to believe by people who have studied this scientifically that it is the only way. Most of the most of this stuff is American uh, written uh, practice, and uh, and I think mm. it is right. So, so do you think there's a there's a space for? In, in some cases for well enough to be left alone nearly that, you know, that the maybe the, the ordinary member of the public will never really quite understand why things happen behind the scenes. And yes, I do, Nicola. And, and what I mean, what we will get this week, the, the, there are no prosecutions going to come out of this. This is mm. largely opinion. Uh, that, that, that is the, the ombudsman uses the term collusive behaviour. But there is no, uh, there's no criminal dimension to that. No one, well, I mean, the families correctly are calling for uh, action against the officers, but that, that's that's not going to happen. Mm. Uh, th- I think. I remember Hugh Ord, former chief constable, saying, "If you ask him, his opinion was a line in the sand," and I think that's what will happen. Tragic as it is, families will start to die off, and and people will continue with a round every corner in the north. Here we have broken hearts, and there are families, uh, some of whom I had forgotten about, and I saw them on Saturday, and it was nice to see them. But you can see the the pain and the heartache still remains all these years later. And is there no way of pushing forward these murder inquiries through cold case techniques or whatever that may be, um, of recognising perhaps that collusion or whatever we'll call it, but but really focusing on bringing those guys that you know who they are into the dock? Is there is there no way of separating the two, do you think? Well, I would have thought... There was some way, but but perhaps I'm naive in it. But, I mean, I am saying to you, Nicola, that a man stood in that boogie shop and and pressed the trigger for for this assault rifle to take five lives and and whatever Mm. damage it did to the the other people. Uh, And I firmly believe that he pulled that trigger in the belief that he would never stand trial. And there has to be something wrong with that. So, mm. uh, and also, I cannot see any senior 
police officer standing over the fact that that had to be allowed, it didn't. And I think uh, that that there should be, from what I know of this individual, it might be wrong of us to focus on him, but this is the most dramatic one because it's the 30th anniversary. Uh, I believe if there was a mind to do so, he could be in the dock charged with Mm. murder. And finally, Hugh, tell me about the story you had in the paper this week and the amazing sort of uh, gathering you discovered of uh, three seriously screwed up individuals as as teenagers in in a in, a, in an army sort yeah. of a camp. Well, well, this is a thing I, I, I more or less stumbled across in in, in recent days, uh, but again, it's using good a. Uh, uh, people who were on the ground at the time and knew these individuals. Uh, we have the troubles breaking out in 1969 and all of these uh, individuals that I'm going to mention were, were young men. Now, the, the man involved in the, in the boogie shop will refer to him as simply as a suspect you because the, the ombudsman refers to him as person you. Uh, but... Two other individuals, a man called uh, Gorman McMullen, who has been named in papers and in a, a documentary film as a suspect in the Lochan Island massacre. And if you remember it, it was similar. Uh, Ireland were playing Italy in the in the World Cup, and um, two gunmen uh, walked into the Heights pub in the lovely village of Lochan Island, County Down, and opened fire, uh, killing several people who were there. McMullen has been mentioned uh, as a suspect uh, and, and a getaway driver in that. He denies it, of course. He has uh, firmly denied it. Uh, he's on record as saying other things, like the Shankle Butchers were a decent bunch of lads. Uh, and, of course, the notorious... Uh, killer Michael Stone of Milltown Massacre fame. Uh, he, he he walked into Milltown during a Republican funeral and opened fire with a pistol and threw stun grenades around the place. He was caught and, and served time for it got out under the Good Friday Agreement. But I found out that all of these individuals, uh, suspect you, Gorman McMullen and Michael Stone, were all part of a British Army cadet corps in East Belfast uh, when they were teenagers. So, I mean, it's it's quite remarkable. Absolutely. All over the UK, they have cadet forces. In the north, they tend to be linked with kind of grammar schools and Protestant areas. But in in East Belfast, there is is one. And this is where these three boys were uh, training to be... Uh, soldiers, and uh, they they end up producing three mass murderers. I'm sure it wasn't the attention, but that was the result. No, but perhaps it's where they first got their taste for holding a gun or, you know, looking down the barrel of a gun. I'm firmly of the belief that uh, when people people show an over-keen interest in guns, it's only a question of time before they want to fire it, you know. It's like giving a monkey a machine gun. Mm-hmm. Once it works mm-hmm. out how to use it, it's a dangerous thing to be around. Well, Hugh, is there anything else you think is important to say um, about the Orma Road? I think 
it, 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 the uh, today's report or this week's report by the ombudsman has uh, been therapeutic in the same way uh, as the Bloody Sunday inquiry was for uh, for for people in Derry. It it was an un, it, it caused a trauma. Uh, and it, w- it hung over the whole place. I know the bookie shop opened again and it looked as though life had gone back to normal, but there was a dreadful feeling that something was entirely wrong about all of this. And it lies at the heart of it that the gunmen who fired the, those weapons that day and took those lives were working for the state. So that's what needed to answer. That's what the difference is. And the difference in Derry as well as the soldiers who opened fire were in the pay of the state. So I think the the, the Ombudsman's report was a very, very necessary part of of healing. So recognising that and saying that out loud is part of the journey to healing. Yeah, I think so. As always, thank you very much, Hugh Jordan. You're welcome. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.